All right, everyone. Well, thank you for coming tonight. It's about three times the people I had anticipated, so I'll um, be nervous. But uh, <laughs> let us pray. Father, we thank you for our church. We thank you for how you have brought us together from all the places you have brought us together from. We remember always, Lord Jesus, that it is you who brings us together. It is you who keeps us together. May we keep our eyes focused on you at all times, our ears attentive to you, our hearts close to yours. It is in the name of Christ Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's begin. I'm going to start with two of your questions that brought us to the table here. One of you, very short, very to the point. You wrote, do those who choose homosexuality or gay marriage definitely go to hell? Tough question. Another of you wrote a longer question. For several, uh, for several years, I felt strongly drawn to the possibility that the Bible verses that call homosexuality a sin may have been translated wrong or out of context over the years. I've done a little research, but honestly, I don't know what to believe. I don't know why this is so important to me, but truly for years, this has been on my heart. I believe God has put this questioning in my heart, but I don't know why. Any teaching or recommendations for what to read or how to pray would be so appreciated. Thank you for the person who took the time to write that question. So tonight we come to consider LGBTQ plus people and the Bible. And we'll begin in the scriptures. Uh, what do the scriptures say about same-sex relationships? Have these scriptures been misunderstood for 2,000 years, as one of our questioners suspects? So that's what we're going to look at together this evening. Tonight is just going to try to accomplish that one goal, so let's not try to stretch the evening farther than what it can go. It's just going to try to address the question, what does the Bible say? That will not settle all corners of this issue for very many of us. Even with tonight, you'll still have to decide, did you agree with the presentation that that is what the Bible seems to say? You'll have to decide even then, do you intend to follow what the Bible says, regardless of what it may or may not mean? Is the Bible the word of God to you? Is the Bible one of the ways God speaks to you and communicates His will to you alongside the Holy Spirit working in the church, the Holy Spirit working in you personally, alongside the miracles of nature? Does the Bible really carry authority in your life? Has the Bible been a good book for you? Have you found power and guidance in it when you have followed it? Do you trust the tradition that gave us the Bible? Do you believe God protected the writing of the Bible, the copying of the Bible, the collecting of the, the collecting of the various writings to form the Bible? Do you believe God protected all of that process for the good of us, His church? It's a lot of questions. And these questions may be more important than the issues we're addressing this evening. So why don't we start out this evening just having... Two minutes of silence. Two minutes of silence to reflect for yourself before we even start down this road. And just, you can journal on any paper you wrote, brought with you. You can just think contemplatively. 
what is the Bible to me? Let's take a couple of minutes of silence and just uh, think about that question. What is the Bible to you? There are six passages in Scripture, Old and New Testament, that deal with same-sex relationships. And so we will be able to deal with all six uh, this evening. We begin in Genesis chapter 19, the story of Sodom. The story starts out, two messengers from God, two angels in fact, have come to visit a man named Lot. Lot, they're staying over the night, so Lot asks these two messengers from God, these two angels, to stay in his home. But as the sun goes down, a mob gathers outside his home. We pick up in verse 4. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. So on one side of this issue, you have the folks who clearly see the sin of Sodom as homosexuality because here we see young men and old men wanting to have sex with other men. However, there's a whole other side to the debate on this verse that says the real sin of Sodom is sexual violence. We have a gang of men who are going to sexually assault two visitors to the city. According to that interpretation, Sodom would have been destroyed no matter what genders were involved because it's profoundly wrong for a mob of anyone to grab any visiting strangers and sexually abuse them. I feel like in this case, either of those interpretations or both of them at the same time could be correct. So Genesis alone does not give us enough to decide 
um, a, a theology on same-sex relationships. And we continue on in the Old Testament to Leviticus, the ritual law section of Leviticus. We have two verses in Leviticus. They occur fairly close together. They say about the same thing. Here's what they say. Leviticus 18.22, do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as, as with a woman. It is a detestable sin. And 20.13 says, if a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. They must both be put to death, for they are guilty of a capital offense. The strongest argument after surveying several against the verses in Leviticus, the strongest argument is that, that they are found in Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus is a strange book all the way around. For instance, I sure you didn't miss that same-sex relationships are punishable by death. Are we really intend to follow that? Is there really anyone but the very most extreme people in the world advocating for anything like that? And, and look here just five verses later. Verse 18, if a man has sexual relations with a woman during her menstrual period, both of them must be cut off from the community, for together they have exposed the source of her blood. Does any of us want to go to a church that tries to enforce that? Well, we have to have a congregational meeting because, uh, well, you know, Ben and Hannah... Now, I have spent a lot of time studying Leviticus. Leviticus is hard to interpret. The first thing you have to know about Leviticus is that anything that destroys worship of God or destroys community or disrupts family in Leviticus is punishable by death. In the Old Testament, you had no right to disrupt worship of God, disrupt community, or disrupt family, and live. Americans will never understand this way of thinking. We, you might be able to bend yourself into that thought mode just for a second, but this is how it was for the Hebrews. For the Hebrews, they placed a higher priority on community rights than they did on individual rights. Now, here, even in the West, we have capital punishment, and a lot of people don't even support that. But when we do support capital punishment, it's only for committing homicide against an individual person. We would never think of having capital punishment for something against, you know, family structure or community structure, but they did. So if same-sex relationships were seen as something that disrupts family or disrupts social order, for them it would be a capital crime. We do not do things that way in our society, but in their society, they did. It's just a cultural difference between us and them. But Leviticus is then weird culturally to interpret, because what do you bring into our culture and what do you leave behind? For instance, right now, why are we wanting to bring in what it says about same-sex relationships, but leave behind the capital... Uh, offense portion of it. Very hard to decide what to bring and what to leave behind. It requires a tremendous amount of study and explanation. And for that reason, I don't believe Leviticus alone should be used as a scripture to decide the place of LGBTQ plus people in the church community. 
And with that, that's the entire Old Testament's word on this issue. Three scriptures and all of them had enough problems that they weren't clarifying for us. So now we go to the New Testament. We begin in the New Testament with Paul's list of sins. So we have 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, which says, The law is for people who are sexually immoral, who practice homosexuality, or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. So here we have Paul including a word that gets translated homosexuality in, Levit- in uh, Timothy, and the word is arsenikoitai. I don't break out the Greek a lot for you, but I'm, we're going to tonight. The word is uh, arsenikoitai. This is the first time in literary history that you can find this word used. In, in everything that is written in the Greek language, this is the first time this word will be used. It's taken from two Greek words that were squeezed together. Maybe Paul's the first person to coin this term. We don't know. But the words are man and lie with. And he's brought them together to make a word that means lying with men. Probably he's trying to echo Leviticus. He was a Jewish rabbi. Do not lie with a man as you lie with a woman. Maybe he's trying to bring that to our mind as he brings these words together. So if you type this word into your Google search tonight, as I'm sure many of you will, the internet is alive pages, two pages of Google searches that I found today with the suggestion that this word only applies to straight men who are paying for male prostitutes, and it doesn't apply to anyone else. And they use this next Bible passage to back up that interpretation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, Paul says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, who worship idols, who commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. So there in the list, you see the two words come together, male prostitutes, and then this arsenikoitai, those who practice homosexuality. So the argument goes, and you can read it over and over again on your internet searches, that Paul, in both of these scriptures, is only talking about pedophilia. He's only talking about the sex slavery of boys. That is, that is the interpretation. Here is why I don't hold to that interpretation, why I, I don't think it's that simple. First of all, Greek already had two words for the relationship between an older man and his young male sex object. They were widely accepted long before Jesus to describe that relationship. And Paul chooses not to use either of those two much more commonly understood words. Instead, he seems to come up with this third word, which echoes the sentiment of Leviticus, one who lies with a man. Now, the word for male prostitute, malakoi, is... The soft one is the direct translation of that word. So the problem with the interpretation that Paul is only talking about the abuse of young boys is why did he list the malachoi, the soft one, why did he list the boy in the sin list? What did the slave boy do wrong? 
what choice did he have? Here, I believe, is a better explanation for the words that you see in that passage. In the Roman Empire, we know there was widespread slavery. Two-thirds of the Roman Empire, uh, particularly the city of Rome, were slaves of one kind or another at this time. There was also the widespread practice of men, usually wealthy, who were otherwise heterosexual. They had wives, kids, concubines, also having sexual rights to their young male slaves. The practice was widespread enough that Rome had special laws to regulate it. A Roman citizen, I should say a male Roman citizen, could have sex with whomever he wanted so long as he was in the dominant penetrating position. However, a slave would be punished if they were to take that position over a Roman citizen. So while Roman law protected the penetrating male... They made the receiving male subservient and somewhat shamed. That was Roman law. That was Roman culture. But Paul, by using different words than they use, is letting his Roman Christians know both sides of these relationships, the active and the passive, are sinful. The law of your land may let you do this to someone because of your status or something like that, but Paul says the scriptures do not. It's not about slaves and masters. It's not about dominance and submission. It's about men lying with men. Now remember, Paul was Jewish, and he had all those Old Testament scriptures to fall back on, backing him up. Another argument that you will find commonly right now, if you, if you research such things mostly using the internet, is that this word, our synechoitai, is actually a mysterious word with an unknown meaning. I read that dozens of times when I studied this. I checked again today. It's even grown more in popularity. The argument that that word, arsenikoitai, is a mysterious word with an unknown meaning. So I reviewed the literature where this word is found outside the Bible, which, by the way, is very disturbingly hard to find. I can find pages of articles telling me what this word means and how it was used, but I couldn't find any articles that would actually show me a paragraph from an ancient document where the word was being used. To find it, I finally had to dig back into European university archives, and then I don't speak Latin, so I had to dig farther. After five hours, I was able to find an English translation of the actual documents that all of this internet and all of these books are referring to. If you want to duplicate this study for yourself, make sure that you do it with original documents and not articles telling you what the original documents said. I read them, and I had the Greek version side by side so I could see when our synechoitai was used. And it was not very mysterious what our synechoitai means when you read those documents. It means homosexual activity of any kind between men. I would read some of these passages to you, but they're very graphic, extremely graphic. I have the English translation here, and you can pick it up later and see if it seems mysterious to you. However, because they were so graphic, it was actually helpful to understand exactly what they were talking about. It didn't leave much to interpretation. 
The most popular argument on the internet right now, even more popular than that, that no one knows what the word means, is that Paul in his time did not know about any kind of gay relationships except for the abusive kind, masters and slaves. The argument goes that the whole culture had never heard of long-term, loving, committed, same-sex relationships. And, and that is, is, is just not the case. So first I want to share with you a video of uh, historian and Bible scholar, uh, the Bishop N.T. Wright. Uh, and just, he's going to discuss that, that argument for just a moment. Watch what he has to say. But one thing I do know as an ancient historian is that there is nothing in contemporary understanding and experience of homosexual condition and behavior that was unknown in the first century. The idea that in the first century it was all about masters having odd relationships with slaves or older men with younger men, yeah, sure, that happened. But read Plato's Symposium. They have permanent, faithful, stable, male-male partnerships, lifelong stuff, Achilles and Patroclus in Homer, all sorts of things. Paul in Corinth will not have been unaware in a world where private life only is for the very rich and the very uh, aristocratic. Everyone else does what they do pretty much in public. Paul will have known the full range of stuff. So that the idea that, oh, well, in the first century they didn't know, we now, with our scientific knowledge, that's a little bit of enlightenment arrogance again, actually. Um, we now know that there is this thing called, called homosexual condition or whatever. That is simply to frame the debate. That is not to settle it. While N.T. Wright is brilliant, I decided not to take his word for it. And I read Plato's Symposium. And I found that the bishop was absolutely right. Not only did Plato, who lived centuries before Jesus, mention stable, loving, same-sex relationships, Plato celebrates them as the best kind of love. He says even more pure than the love between a man and a woman. Plato's Symposium advocates for loving men, not just for their minds, but also for their, or not just for their bodies, but also for their minds. Loving them into their old age, not just in their youth. And we also know that Paul was educated in Greek philosophy, as were many other folks in their time. And they would have known the writings and the attitudes of Plato. So our conclusion regarding 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians is that the Bible does say that same-sex relationships are a sin, and it does use those words in much the same way as we would use them in our own time. Our final verse about same-sex relationships is the longest, and many believe the most convincing, so it's also going to require the most discussion. Romans chapter 1, the history of mankind's sin. So settle in, this is a longer passage of scripture. Paul writes, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. 
And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it was foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolishness, thinking, or abandoned them to their foolish thinking, and letting them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, breaking their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. Clearly, this is the longest, and many feel the most conclusive passage about the Scripture's feelings about same-sex relationships. In this passage, Paul describes all the ways humans have gone astray from God, including a lengthy and completely negative discussion of same-sex relationships. However, there is another interpretation. Some will argue that this passage is not speaking against same-sex relationships. Rather, it's talking about idol worship in pagan temples. It's talking about people who aren't really gay, acting like they are, just for the thrill of it, or to uh, worship pagan gods. Perhaps the best person to express this point of view is the late Dr. Lewis Smedes. I love Lewis Smedes. Everything you've ever heard me preach on forgiveness, I read from Lewis Smedes. He gives a captivating account of Romans chapter 1 in a 30-minute sermon. I have taken the best five minutes, uh, six minutes, I think, of what he had to say, and I'd like us to watch that now for a different point of view on this. In Romans 1, St. Paul is talking about people who in their hearts knew God, but refused to know him in their heads, and therefore were ungrateful and never said thanks to God. So God says, all right, you want to live without me? Then I'll let you. See how you can do without me. And God did that. And what happened to them was that they got enmeshed in a swarm of vices. Listen to this. Murder and strife and deceit and craftiness, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Oh, and there are some people amongst all of these who lust after people of their own sex. How did they get that way? Who are these people? Well, they're the people who knew God in their hearts 
and were ungrateful to it. There are also people who worship snakes and other animals and human beings. Now, I don't know who those people were, but I am certainly sure of this. They're not the homosexual people that I know. These are people, remember, God didn't reject them because they were homosexual. They became homosexual, well, they acted homosexual because God had abandoned them. Not the other way around. It's very important. So I say, God abandoned people because they were ungrateful to him. And they ended up lusting after their own sex and doing all sorts of unnatural things. Well, they're not the homosexual people I know, not the Christian homosexual people I know. Christian homosexual people I know, most of them have loved God all their lives. They have thanked God all their lives. Sometimes it's been hard because they've had to thank God in spite of mistreatment by God's people. They couldn't be these people because the people I know are not distinguished because they're lusting all the time. As far as I could tell, they don't lust any more than I have in my life. Not only that, but St. Paul says, these are people who, after God abandoned them, decided to act as homosexuals. The people that I know and the people that I've heard about, homosexual people, didn't decide to become homosexual people. They didn't exchange their natural inclinations for something else. This is what they discovered themselves to be. They always were, from as long as they could remember. So, the people that I know and love, many of them harassed and treated very abominably by my Christian brothers and sisters, don't fit. They just don't fit the people that St. Paul is talking about. And if that is true, if that's true, as it obviously is, then the church's whole biblical reason for its exclusion from its fellowship of gay and lesbian Christian people is all wrong. It is biblically all wrong. That message came as close to changing my mind as anything ever has. After I listened to that message, I spent the next two days of my study time in silence and contemplation, and I did not read or write another thing.
It was during that time of contemplation that I then came to realize that Dr. Smeeds, as much as I love him, is interpreting Romans 1 exactly backwards. Dr. Smeeds' argument against Romans is that Romans is talking about very sinful people. But the gay people he knows are not very sinful people. Therefore, the Bible is not calling same-sex relationships a sin. But if you just read five more verses of Romans, you find this. After saying everything you read there, Paul picks up right here and says, Now you may think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same types of things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you're stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. So Paul starts with this list of people who do all these things that in their culture everyone would kind of be nodding along. Yes, murderers. Yes, these. Oh, yes. LGBTQ people too. Yep, yep. And then Paul says, so you think all those folks are sinners? Well, you're no better. You do all the same types of things. And the good news is God is forgiving us all. None of us is without great sin in our lives. So to, to speak of this passage as, as Dr. Smeeds does and says, this passage is not talking about my gay friends. Because my gay friends are better than the people described here. It's to say just the opposite of what Paul was trying to say when he wrote that passage. Which is that we are all just as sinful as all the people being described in those pages. Paul says, look at this sin and now see yourself too. Dr. Smeeds is turning Romans 1 around backwards and saying, look at this and, and don't see yourself here. That's not a good use of Romans 1. It leads us to say, oh, I see sin condemned here, but I don't see my sin here. And that's exactly the sort of thinking Paul was trying to rescue his readers from when he wrote those words. And we have one last biblical problem. There are no conflicting scriptures on same-sex relationships. No positive portrayals of same-sex relationships in the Scripture. We all know that there are Bible verses out there that seem to indicate women should not be involved in ministry. But we also know there are Bible verses where women lead all of Israel and women have house churches and women, you know, when they prophesy in church, Paul says, here's how they should do it. So I guess they weren't that silent. So we have to sort that out. We all know that there are Bible verses that seem to condone slavery. 
But we also know there are Bible verses that regulate slavery. You know, there's a whole entire letter asking someone, why don't you let your slave be your slave no longer and instead be your brother? So we have both of those and we have to sort all that out. But positive portrayals of same-sex relationships are not present. We have just these six scriptures. And they're all negative. So for the person who wrote on the card, for several years I felt strongly drawn to the possibility that the Bible verses that call homosexuality a sin may have been translated wrong or out of context. Um, the conclusion I'm coming to is, while that is always possible, I don't actually think that is true. When I take Genesis and Leviticus and Romans and 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy all together, I see that same-sex relationships is not God's intention for our sexuality. I interpret that he's warning us against something that's ultimately not good for us and not good for the world he is making. Okay. So we said same-sex relationships is a sin. Now we've got to keep that in perspective. It's just a sin. It's just a sin, everyone. What do I mean by that? I mean this. I mean, does sin mean that God hates you? Who here sins? And I mean on a regular basis. Does God hate you? Does God call you to hate people who sin? How many of you know someone who sins? You strongly suspect they live in your same house with you. How many of you know someone who sins? Does, some of you won't raise your hands. You're smart. Um, does God want you to hate that person? You know the answer is no. You know the answer is no. Meditate on this scripture for a moment. Luke chapter 7. The Son of Man, on the other hand, he feasts, he drinks. You say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Jesus says, oh, you call me a friend of sinners. Yeah, that's right. That's right, I am a friend of sinners. Check out this uh, photograph that an art, uh, artist, photography artist staged and took. He called it Jesus, friend of sinners. Notice especially the uh, person uh, dressed in drag in the doorway, some sort of uh, trans orientation there. Now meditate on this scripture and ask yourself, would Jesus be in this room? Would Jesus be sharing God as he knew him with these people? They seem to be asking him questions. They seem to be kind of challenging him. Would Jesus be sitting there for all of that? You know he would if you read the Gospels. You know he would. Our Lord was called the friend of sinners and Thank God that makes him our friend. Here's the thing to remember when you call something a sin. It doesn't mean the stuff God hates you for. Get that definition right out of your mind because uh, that was invented by I don't know who. Remember this, God's acceptance does not wait for God's approval. I stole that line from, uh, you know who I stole it from. I've forgotten his name. <laughs> Redeemer Church in New York. Tim Keller, I ripped it off. 
When I was baptized, I felt God's acceptance, but he did not approve of my lack of generosity. I did not tithe back then. The Bible says not tithing is a sin. The Bible says not tithing is robbing God. I did that, and he still accepted me. God did not approve of my anger and my rage and my deceitfulness the day I came out of those baptismal waters. Lying breaks one of the Ten Commandments. God did not approve of my lying, but he accepted me. I still sin. He still accepts me. So for the person who asks, do those who choose homosexuality or gay marriage definitely go to hell? The answer must be no. No, they don't definitely go to hell. Well, then what about 1 Corinthians 6? Don't you realize that those who, those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves, it even says. Those who indulge in sexual sin, who worship idols, who commit adultery, are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what can that mean? Doesn't that mean that those who practice homosexuality definitely go to hell? No, it must not mean that. Otherwise, everyone else on that list is definitely hell-bound too. All the sexual sin, all the liars, all the drunks. Who's going to be left? Heaven's going to be, be a very loud echo in there. Nope, that must not be what it means. Well, what can it mean then? Well, as always with the Bible, just read the next verse. Verse 11. I didn't skip any verses. I just went right on past. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God on, by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That means, the passage means that Jesus saves us from all these things. But if any of us stubbornly pursues any of these sins from same-sex relationships to getting drunk, we risk taking ourselves to that place where we no longer care about God, no longer believe that He loves us, where we may become the type of person who turns away from Him. But for God's part, God always loves us. For God's part, God always accepts us. Praise Jesus that his acceptance does not wait for his approval of everything that we do. He gives us time to work these things out and churches to work them out in. Romans chapter 8, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from the love of God. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in conclusion, the Bible teaches... That same-sex relationships are not God's design for human sexuality, but God accepts all people who wish to follow him. Even if they still practice things he does not approve of. And all people together come around him and we begin reforming our lives into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen.